Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of Subspace Communique's Life After Trek. I'm your host, Chris, and with me, as always, is Charity. Hi, hi. A.K.A. Crewman Becky. And you're A.K.A. Captain Pike. So tonight's episode is a pretty special one. We got to spend some time with Michael Demerit uh, at BayouCon 2012 back in June. Michael was the second assistant director on Voyager and Enterprise and later becoming first assistant director uh, on Enterprise. Uh, we got to spend some time with him, like I said, at BayouCon and got to listen to tons of his uh, really interesting stories about the behind the scenes uh, action on Star Trek. Um, and we dive into that in great detail in this episode. So I don't really want to give anything away. Uh, but we'd like to to thank Michael for joining us, and we'd also like to say that this episode of Subspace Communiques Life After Trek is sponsored by Bye Bye Robot. Ah, very well placed. Yeah, did you like that? Oh, yeah, totally. That's our uh, fine art poster uh, company that we started that sells licensed Star Trek fine art and posters. It's so fancy. Imagine that. Uh, but you guys can check it out at com. So without further ado, here's our interview with Michael Demerit. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Our guest tonight has been working in Hollywood since the uh, late 80s on hit shows like The Wonder Years and L.A. Law. Uh, most recently, he's worked on ABC Family's Make It or Break It, Showtime's Californication, uh, and NBC's Las Vegas, just to name a few. But he's probably best known to us Trek fans for being the second AD and later first AD on both Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, we'd like to welcome Michael Demer to the show. Hey Mike, thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, no, this is awesome. We met we met Mike at BayouCon uh, 2012 in Lake Charles, uh, Louisiana. So we got the chance to see Mike's panels that featured real inside baseball details about his time on Voyager and Enterprise. And if you guys out there get the chance to check them out, you definitely should. Uh, he features tons of rare photos from both productions uh, and has some really, really awesome, amazing stories uh, to tell. And hopefully we'll dive into some of that tonight. Um, but what we really want to start with is is how you got into directing. Uh, we read that you went to the University of, of Michigan. No, 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 not a Wolverine, no. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Spartan, Michigan State University, Michigan the State. real oh. university of, of Michigan. Okay. Here, let, me, let me tell you. Let me tell you what you need to know. <laughs> this is important. You got. You got to know this. How do you get a University of Michigan graduate off your doorstep? How's that? You pay him for the pizza. <laughs> <laughs> we need to insert the symbols now. Yeah, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So Michigan State University. Right. I have a lot of relatives who uh, who went to University of Michigan as well. It's common for people from Michigan to have what they call split households oh that's um, funny because it, it is uh in state is the biggest rivalry it, it is not the biggest rivalry for university of michigan for the Ohio state's more important to them but for uh for the msu guys we've been called the younger brothers for so long that it, they are our number one anytime you beat them all else is forgiven so it's probably like <laughs> so, UT and the whole texas a&m Oh yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. USC, UCLA, that that kind of across the street rival, where you know you have to act like you don't like them more than than is truthful, because in actuality you know a bunch of people who went there. Sure. You know, oh yeah, <laughs> and they actually actually have a lot of friends, and it's just like, but you gotta you gotta do the rivalry, you gotta play the part. Yeah, Mike actually <laughs> lived here in Central Te Texas for a brief time. Um, we got to talk about that some in uh, 
at BayouCon, but I want to share a quick little story that's kind of along the same lines. Uh, after we moved here, I guess it was like a year after we moved to Central Texas, um, it was the, was it the Rose Bowl? I believe it was the Rose Bowl. Um, UT was playing USC, and uh, I went out that night, or we went out that night to go eat, and I had a track jacket that was USC colors, unbeknownst to me. We had no idea. I had no idea. And I, I was like, why are people staring at me? They're giving me they, the stink eye. They weren't eye even staring. Every... They were glaring. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> is it my giant hair? Is it? No. In Texas, it's a bigger deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, everything's yeah. bigger in Texas, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, but there's, well, their hockey isn't so great. But, they, <laughs> but they're, uh, but their love of football in Texas was probably second only to love of church. Yeah, it seems my to be experience. pretty strong. No, yeah. that's very true. That's very true. Yep. So at uh, Michigan State University, did you uh, did you study theater or how did you get into? Because I know that you did writing originally, right? Um, no, I majored in telecommunications, okay. um, which was the catch-all that included film, uh, television, and media communications. They, they have since changed the name to actually reflect modern parlance but you know telecommunications was the, the the part of the communications college that emphasized electronic or film oriented communication they didn't have a genuine film school because they just didn't have the facilities for it so we did film like projects on videotape and you know just to emphasize i'm talking about videotape you know that mylar stuff that <laughs> ran overheads you know that People hear the word video and, and don't associate tape with it anymore. <laughs> and that's how I learned. And I learned how to edit that way, too, which was, you know, uh, to, to young people learning how to edit now, uh, I almost wish they had to work on a Sony RM440 for their first couple of projects because you cannot change your mind about how long a cut is or where you want an insert to go once you've laid down your, your base track that's it. Oh wow! If you keep running it again, it will destroy the tape. You just you can't do that many cuts. So you have to think the whole thing out, and and that's it. And nowadays, you know, you can just you know expand it, contract it, add a little piece here. Oh, I think I'm gonna put the scene from here to there, and you just grab it and drop it. It's just you know, it's so easy now. It's almost unfathomable how much it's changed in, in just that short period of time from when I was at Michigan State. So your planning process was much more detailed. I mean, it would have to have been than what oh, it was. Yes. Yeah. And the risk was much higher because gotcha. we shot on three-quarter inch tape at state. And uh, if you set, if you put it through the edit too many times, you started to have dropout and glitches, which would affect your master. And if you, if you got to the point where you actually burned a hole in the, in the tape, then you had to literally start over. Oh, wow. Oh, man. And, yeah, and there was no, you couldn't transfer from what you had already done that was still good because you lose a generation and you could physically see the quality. It became sort of like wavy and grainy mm. with each dub. And now it's perfect. You know, you, you can take anything off of a, even the simplest digital camera and reproduce it perfectly to, you know, millions of people. Uh, that wasn't that easy to do when I started. So this kind of leads me into, um, we'll, we'll come back to your your work in college and how you actually made it out to Hollywood, but that, that makes me think. So I know that that uh, TNG um, was mixed down to video from right the, uh, for airing reasons. And so did they do yeah. that with Voyager as well and, and Deep Space yes. Nine? Okay. Yeah, I can't speak for Deep Space Nine, but 
but that was the that's the model. You would you would cut your print and then it would go to a video editing. I was there sort of I, I sort of met one of the guys who was primarily responsible for the the first initiative change that that led to what we think of as uh, nonlinear editing today. Um, and his name was Jim Hart, and he worked on a, a show I was uh, on called Telly Law. And I asked him the story because I said, you know, I, I hear your name associated with this edit right process. And he said, yeah, when they when Lucas was first pushing this edit right concept, um, his argument was to the studios that it would be faster and thus cheaper. And uh, he was tasked by um, Box Studios to to look into the truth of that. So he, he really got into the concept behind the edit droid system, which was a nonlinear editing system. And you sort of have to imagine what it used to be like. We sh- we're shooting on film. Even, you know, we shot on film uh, all of Voyager for that matter. And, and you would literally take these strips of film and you would cut them into a piece and then the editor would move the pieces around and make a rough edit. And then when you like that, they would later then go do a real edit. And the concept of edit right is to transfer the film pieces directly to video and do your cut on this computerized editing system. And so he studied it. And of course, it was phenomenal. It was a big step up in terms of processing. And uh, when he approached the, the board, the, the actual Fox board, you know, uh, New York and L.A., and they said, what do you think of this? Is it really faster? And he said, yeah, it's faster and, and, and it's more efficient. And they said, so it will be cheaper? And he said, no, it won't be cheaper. And they said, why not? And he said, guys, it's allocated hours. If you say it's going to take, if you, if you dedicate 12 hours to get something done, it's going to take 12 hours. What's going to change is they'll be spending less time hanging up strips of film and moving stuff around. And they'll spend more time editing but your labor costs are not going to change. You're not going to suddenly edit in eight hours. They'll just take more time to edit better. And because he was so honest about it, they went for it. And once big shows like that went for it, then it was, that was the way it was going to be done. And, and it's then everything from that point on is just based off of that nonlinear editing platform and taking your film, immediately transferring it to video and the, First digital ages came out. They were horrible, just absolutely horrible. Uh, we did a test on Voyager. Oh, I can still see it. <laughs> we were testing the, the digital cameras. So we brought in our 35-millimeter camera, and we did exactly the same setup, same lighting conditions with a digital camera in a Borg set. And a Borg set is loaded with green light and yellow light that's pumped through smoke, and there's a lot of people with this elaborate sprayed-on makeup that also has prosthetics underneath the, uh, the airbrushed makeup. So very complicated look. And when you look at it on film, what you get is this, this sort of, you, don't, you know the smoke is there, but you don't. And it has this depth that sort of drops away. Right. And you'll see these, these colors that sort of fall in between. They go like from gray to green to yellow to gray to green to yellow, and they sort of blend. And you have these really ominous-looking sort of model-looking creatures coming at you with their lasers shooting through the smoke. And when you looked at the digital camera, which was shot right next to it and under exactly the same conditions, what you saw was some smoke hanging in the air, a big circle of green light, a big circle of yellow light, and these guys with something stuck on their face because you could see the scenes, <laughs> and no sense of the laser at all. It's just like a red dot on their eye. And when they saw those tests, they were like, this doesn't cut it for us. 
and that's it. We didn't do digital. And then when Enterprise came along, they wanted us to, Sony uh, came in and wanted us to test their latest equipment, and we are like, ah. And when we tested that equipment, in a matter of just a couple of years, unbelievable. That's awesome. Yeah, from the first year to, to the, from the third year to the fourth year on, on Enterprise, we went from film to digital in an attempt to save the show. We needed to cut costs, and I, we had to cut some scenes together that were partially shot in the film, uh, with intercut from the year before, intercut with scenes shot in digital. And I still challenge people to notice. Uh, the, the, that was the point when we knew that the film age in television was over. Yeah. Because the digital age, had, had, it hasn't really caught up. I mean, 35 millimeter film is still way more pixels per dot than you can get on even the highest resolution and sampling rates. But it caught up enough. Yeah. And that absolutely. was it. That was it. Yeah, it was a big transition. That's the kind of stuff we definitely want to, <laughs> people dig that kind of story. So to kind of circle back to, to your earlier stuff, though, what, yeah. what transitioned you from Michigan State uh, graduating, and then when did you actually make the move out to Hollywood? And it said in your bio that you worked for uh, United Artists first, right? United Artists Cable. Yeah, United okay. Artists Cable was uh, in Rochester. It was basically a big chunk of Oakland County, and, and uh, not Oakland County in California, but Oakland County here in, in, in Michigan, back in Michigan. So they had like a 200,000, you know, household cable system. Uh, back in the days when it was exclusive, like there was no other choice. You either had this cable system or you had an antenna. There's right. nothing else. Yeah. So, of course, they had a lot of subscribers. And I was put on part of my time when I was hired there. Before that, when I got out of Michigan State, I actually was a boom operator on one of the worst movies that were made called The Carrier. And then I got this job, which was a real job, as a studio coordinator. And... Basically, my job was to run a three-camera studio and uh, two editing bays and uh, you know one of those remote production trucks that had a Grass Valley switcher inside the truck, and you could you could hook up about three cameras to it and switch between them. And half my time was local origination, and half my time was something called public access, which was the public was allowed to come in and use the equipment to make whatever they wanted for free speech, you know. And I'm sure you had some interesting interesting shows that uh <laughs> mostly mostly not um mostly not interesting shows that was the problem i can remember the good ones yeah. still and they were rare but in that process i met creative people who had no creative training and uh one of them just by chance was this guy named paul von christensen he asked me to direct this uh, he said i have this great screenplay oh it's going to be great and i want you to direct it and he described it to me and I thought it was wonderful. It's a fun science fiction concept. But he insisted on naming this thing Dark Side of the Moon mm. because cause it, a lot of it took place on a space station on the dark side of the moon. And I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> no, please don't do that. Everyone's going to think it has something to do with Pink Floyd. Sure. No, no, nobody. This is a movie, not a record. How? <laughs> please don't. But he insisted. <laughs> We wanted to call it. We wanted to call it Dark Side. Myself and, and the art director, who was also the lead, we wanted to call it Dark Side. But he, he, you know, he owned it and he won. He also didn't know how to write screenplay because it, it was really just a collection of ideas. So I wrote the screenplay, and then I 
he would cast it by walking his dog in the park, and he'd see somebody who he thought would look right in a role, and he'd come up to him and say, oh, you'd be great for my movie, and they'd think, this guy's crazy. And he would take them to the studio, and once they saw we had real equipment and real setup, they would go like, we really are going to make a movie. So it was cast completely with people who had no, not even informal acting training. It was literally people out of the park. And we got this uh, electrician who did commercials, and he had some experimental lighting things he wanted to play with. So he, he lit this thing of beautiful lighting. And, uh, you know, we shot it on our three-quarter-inch terrible, you know, base industrial-level equipment. And throughout the process, I was just dying. I was like, this can't be how it's done. It's like we're shooting stuff you know, one weekend and we shoot another scene a year later on a weekend and the female lead's hair has gone from curly and straight to, you know, and then it's <laughs> short and, and it's, it's supposed to all be in sequence and, and it, it was just, it was just wrong. The elements of production were wrong for a very good story. So I went to my local bookstore in Rochester, Michigan, and I was looking for self-help book uh, and training about how to be, how do they make films in Hollywood. And the how-to section in those days was nothing. It's just, you know, it's like there's 10 books, and sure. that's it for how-to. I mean, who's going to buy books about how to do something? Um, and as I walked in, there were all these books on the floor, and I actually stepped on one in the cinema section, and I looked down, and the book was called The Film Director's Team. <laughs> and I picked it up, and I started looking at it, and it described what an assistant director was, what they did, what a unit production manager was, what they did. And I realized that that's the book. That's going to explain everything. So I take it up front to buy it. And the lady at the cash register, and this is before there were any scanners. This is when they punched the numbers and, you know, and went crashing. <laughs> you know, she said, she said, you can't buy that book. I said, what do you mean? I just and she said, no, all the books on the floor were sent here by mistake. They were supposed to go to Rochester, New York, our branch in Rochester, New York. They weren't supposed to come here. So we have to pack them up and send them back. I said, but this is the book I want. <laughs> so she called the branch in New York, and I put cash in an envelope that she put in the box oh, so they geez. could ring it up no on their kidding. register. And then inside this book, folded up, was a piece of paper that talked about, you know, if, you, if, if you're interested in being an assistant director, take the test to become a, a, a trainee. It was called the um, Directors Guild of America's Producers Training Plan for Assistant Directors Training. And so I, I filled it out and I mailed it off. I came to L.A., I took a test, me and 2,100 other people, and I was one of 20 people selected. Wow. He did. took several phases. You know, you had to do a test and you had to do these interviews. You had to do another set of tests. And that's how I got into the Director's Guild. So in, in 1990, I left United Artists and got into the training program. In 1992, I got into the Director's Guild. Worked, I worked on shows as a trainee, like, I mean, this will age me, you know, the Wonder Years. Sure. And uh, Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Oh, I used to I love, love that remember. movie yeah. or show, I mean. Yeah, it yes, was like one of my favorite shows. Totally. Yeah, that was fun. It was the Ferris Bueller TV show didn't work, and yeah. the Lewis did, and it's like this. This should have been called Ferris Bueller because then it might have been more successful because this really had the spirit of it better than the one named for the movie, you know. But in any event, you know that's how I got in, and uh, and I worked on you know, like Columbo. I worked on one of the last Columbos, and I worked on a show called Steel Justice, which was just 
a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very familiar to me. Well, you remember that um, that big robot, a uh, robosaurus that would eat cars and blows fire out its nose and it takes about five guys to drive it. Sure. Yeah. Truck yeah. that spin. That was the star. <laughs> oh no! Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was it was a very odd concept that if it had been shot tongue in cheek, might have worked. But the director wanted to make Blade Runner. Oh no! <laughs> so he'd been given this premise of. You know, this guy could take his kid's toy and turn it into the real thing, and it would attack bad guys. And instead of making Power Rangers, which would work, he he wanted to make Blade Runner, and that didn't work. With Robosaurus. That's great. <laughs> With Robosaurus, yeah. <laughs> so it didn't quite, it didn't, in fact, that was the original working title of the of the show, is Robosaurus. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, then, of course, I got lucky. I got on, uh, I, first I did FBI Untold Stories, was a second second, and I got on, L.A. Law for two seasons as a second, second AD, and then I got an, uh, an offer to interview on a recommendation from you know one guy, Martin Jedlicka, who I just love, to do this uh, Star Trek new show, Star Trek Voyager, to do the pilot. And I'd watched Star Trek. I'd watched it as a kid, a little kid. I'd watched Star Trek as I grew up. I had actually written the script for The Next Generation that I had submitted too late because it got to them on the seventh season. And, uh, and here I am you know, interviewing to be on the pilot of a new show. And I'm like, man, if I can get this pilot, if I just get this pilot, I'll get a whole year. I know I will. I'll get a whole year of work. <laughs> and then 11 years later, I, you know, was there when they turned the lights out on the very last shot wow. of Enterprise. So that's a, that's I, an I awesome was in the right place at the right Amazing. time. Yeah, totally. yeah, that is fantastic. So maybe to explain to folks out there a little bit more, Maybe you can give some insight into what a second uh, assistant director does. What's the responsibilities and what's the, the work day like, that kind of stuff? Well, it's an interesting, you know, it's an, an interesting enigma because these terms go back to the earliest days of film, um, you know, back into the silent era. There was a first assistant director and a second assistant director. And uh, the terms have never left. So in the modern era when people, when you say to someone, Oh, I'm a first AD. They they are not sure that it, what that means, and they're particularly a lot of people think, oh, does that mean you get coffee for the director? And I said, no, that's the director's assistant. <laughs> this is different. the The best comparison that I can make for what an AD team does is project management, because that's what we do. Except we our product is creative people. Our departments are actors and makeup and hair. But it's the same thing as a construction site. You have to build it. It has to be built in the right order. It has to be safe. And someone has to plan what order you're going to build it in. And that's essentially what assistant directors are for. It's an interesting dynamic because there's a lot of wrinkles in there. Like in the uh, European system, they have third assistant directors, which have defined roles. And then there's second assistant directors and first, whereas in the U.S. system, we just have first and seconds. The guy who's in charge of all the seconds, or the, or the girl, is called the key second assistant director. And the next person under them is called the second second assistant director. And if you have any more, they're just called additional second assistant directors. And the core difference in the philosophy is that in the European system, a third assistant director only does what a third assistant director does and nothing more. They don't do what a second assistant director does because they weren't hired for that. Whereas in the American system, 
um, all second ADs should be able to perform the tasks of all second ADs, and they should be able to interchange. And there's a lot of tasks, like running base camp, getting people through makeup and hair, um, coordinating tomorrow's work, making a, a very important piece of paper called a call sheet that tells everybody what we're doing tomorrow. And there's a legal piece of paperwork that's, that's very uh, important to the people beyond production, which is called the production report. So you can think of a call sheet as this is what we're planning to do, and the production report at the end of the day is this is what we actually did. And uh, the production report is legal. So when you put people's in and out times on it, the accounting department looks at that to make sure that it matches what they're putting on their time card. So this can affect how people get paid. So, of course, since it has nothing to do with filmmaking, that one always falls to whoever's bottom on the food chain. If you have a trainee, they'll do it. If you have PAs, they'll do it. If you only have a, you know, one a key second and a second second, it's going to be the second second. Mm. No, and nobody higher up the food chain ever wants to deal with that piece of paper because it's no fun. It's <laughs> all facts. It sounds really important, though. So it's, it's funny that it would fall to the lowest on the food chain. Well, it is very important. And the, and the, the one thing that's absolutely true is in the process of, of learning how to do a production report, you will be better at doing call sheets. Uh, because because you'll think a little bit more about cause and effect because you've, you're constantly have worked with what the effect was. So when you're doing a call sheet and you see something like, gee, are they aware that if we move from this place to this place, that's that's going to be an hour and a half? And you'll ask the question to the first AD, like, you know, that this is a big move and at this time of day on Wilshire Boulevard is going to be an hour and a half. And you just might have the first AD turn around and go, Oh, shit, I didn't think about the time of day. <laughs> and you may you may save the day. Totally. But that's something you may not have been aware with, of if you hadn't done production reports where you realized we lost the scene because of this. Mm. And, yeah. You know, this didn't get, you know, this problem happened because of that, or we spent way too much money on Steadicam because the director kept him around all day, and he had him in the first scene and the last scene, and they didn't do anything in between. We spent $6,000 on one person and one piece of equipment. And that could, that's, you know, that's a hundred extras at, at non-union wages. Mm-hmm. So you start to think a little more producer-like when you do the production report. And then when you do call sheets, it facilitates that thinking. But I guarantee you, bottom person, bottom person gets the production report. That still boggles my mind because it's so important. You know, I mean, so does that person on the, the, the person that typically gets that, you know, the lowest guy on the rung, is, is that maybe the person that advances pretty well? Like, because they know the ins and outs, do they end up being, nope. you know? No, I don't up? think so. Um, no. Because, because like I say, you could put, give it to a, a, a trainee. Some shows even give it to production assistants, though they're not supposed to. Um, it's not hard to master as much as it is a pain mm. to do. Because uh, at the end of the day, you know, imagine... Imagine your workday with a bunch of Borgs working, okay? And particularly in the feature. I like to, to use the feature more than the TV show because we took what, in the feature, they spent about five and a quarter hours to make a Borg. Oh, wow. <laughs> we didn't, we weren't allowed that. So Michael Westmore had to design shortcuts for the TV shows to emulate the new Borg look from the feature. You know, not the white-faced ones, not the original ones, but the, the new ones. And he had to find a way to, to clip that time, and he came up with some clever shortcuts so that we could do it in three hours instead of, you know, five and a quarter. 
But on the feature, if you wanted to shoot at 7 a.m. and you have people who need five hours and 15 minutes to get ready, what time are they coming to work? Two in the morning, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. So you have to have a makeup team, a wardrobe team, and a hair team because the hair has to be caught down if you're going underneath those, those helmets. All those people are there, and you have an assistant director whose responsibility is to see that it's done. Mm. All right, so now you got these guys working five hours, and now all of a sudden you, you're at the start of your day, and there's union rules about you know how long you can work somebody without feeding them. So you nearly need to break all these guys for breakfast, bring them in for rehearsal, finish up all the little fine-tuning pieces, and then you shoot. Well, you've got these giant look and giant sets. These are probably your most intense days. You don't have scenes in Star Trek of a couple of Borgs sitting in the room talking. <laughs> so they always are in the biggest action scenes. So that means the longest days. So you shoot 16 hours. Jeez. Then you got to take the makeup off of them. And that could take two hours. So these guys playing the Borgs in the feature were working 20-hour days, sleeping five hours, coming back, doing it again. And the assistant directors were keeping track of all this, watching the money fly out. Because they're in that heavy makeup, they were making more money than anybody. You know, they were, they were making huge money. Um, but that whole process, that whole planning process, has to have been thought out ahead of time or it will not be budgeted correctly. And that's where your first assistant director in prep, that's, that's one of the most important things he does. You know, do you guys realize that we're going to have guys who are making, at the end of the day, $300 an hour after they reach 16 hours for four or five hours, and it's going to be huge, it's going to be expensive, and they would do the math, and they would decide, yeah, it's better to do it that way than to have more days with them. It's cheaper to work them a lot in a shorter period of time than it is to keep them on and have another month of shooting with all the equipment you have to rent. And that's sort of where the first AD comes in in terms of scheduling. So if you want to break it down a little bit, you know, into simple thinking, you can think of the second, second AD is the person who typically is on the set, helps set the background. Their job is to think about what do we need right now and what do we need in the very near future. And the key second AD is the person who's making sure the base camp is running. He has assistance usually of some kind of nature, but unless it's really small. And they're also preparing tomorrow. They spend a great amount of their time getting tomorrow ready. In a feature, you don't spend as much time getting tomorrow ready because there's no script coming in. There's no looping that has to be done. There's no finishing of a prior show. But on television, tomorrow is not just what you're going to shoot. It's, it's prepping everything that's going to happen tomorrow for all the actors, for all the elements. And it tends to be complicated, and it also tends to change in television. You'll get a rewrite, mm. and we have to change everything on the fly. So the key second's primary function is to make sure that what's happening right now is handled and what's happening tomorrow, more than anything, is ready. And then you have the first AD who, in television, there's two of them. So while one first AD is on the set with the director, going through it shot by shot, overseeing it, calling the cuts and the roles, sometimes calling the actions of the director is the kind of director who doesn't like to do that. Um, and making sure that the plan is being followed, seeing the problems as they're coming, literally project management, you know, w watching the flow, just making decisions as to whether or not we're going to run out of time on something and trying to get the director to make a decision as to where they're going to, how they're going to catch up. And then you 
finish your show and you go prep with the director, um, not the next show, but the one after it. And the first AD who was up in the office prepping with the director while you were shooting, now he shoots. And you go back and forth like a piston. And that's pretty much the television structure right there. Features are a little different uh, because you don't, unless you're a double units, you only need one first AD. And you plan everything. And the scripts don't change as often on good features. So once you've made your plan, you just have to execute it. You know, you were saying that uh, that you guys experienced rewrites. That actually kind of makes me want to uh, talk about the Voyager pilot uh, that had uh, had Genevieve. And <laughs> I can rewrite. I can never pronounce her last name, so maybe you should just pronounce her full well, name you, for me. You haven't you haven't pronounced her first name yet. Uh, it's Genevieve, right? No, no, no. I'll tell you, this. she <laughs> made that really clear with me. <laughs> Because I said that. That's the first thing I said. Is it, is it Genevieve? And she goes, it's not Genevieve. It is not Genevieve. I don't like that. I don't want to hear that. You tell everyone, it's Jean-Vierre. Jean-Vierre Boujol. Jean-Vierre, say it back to me, Michael. Jean-Vierre. Jean-Vierre, that is perfect. That's what I want you to tell everyone. Jean-Vierre. And I did. I told everyone, listen, she's got a big thing about it. Don't, don't call her Genevieve. <laughs> or Guinevere. No. Jean-Vierre. <laughs> So oh, man. when that pilot started, the first thing we noticed, the, the biggest fun, that I was the second second, and, and Arlene Fukai was the key second. And the first piece of fun we had was when we noticed that we had three Roberts in the cast. And I said, well, we can't keep saying bring in Robert on the radio. It's just going <laughs> to kill us. <laughs> sure. So we decided we would get to decide what their nicknames were going to be based on their personalities. <laughs> and so I had a lot of influence on that. And that's why Robbie McNeil is Robbie. Here's a Robbie. You know, oh, he's yeah. a Robbie. Yeah. And Robert, Robert's more, you know, he was more of a Shakespearean actor, so he was Robert. And since Robert Picardo played the doctor, he became Dr. Bob. <laughs> so he was Bob. And that's how we kept him apart. But when Jean Vieff came on set the first time, the first scene, it was uh, the tension got really high really fast, really fast. And these crew guys who had, you know, done the previous Star Trek incantation that they know they either came from Deep Space Nine or Next Generation. They were they were looking around, and I even saw a couple of them that you know the first time we printed and had a break, go to the phone and get on the phone and say, "Hey, listen, uh, if you got anything coming up for me, I don't think the show is going to last much longer. I might not even get out the pilot." <laughs> wow. I mean, it was it was like the fit was so wrong mm. that they could feel it, and uh, and she had these arguments with the director that were sort of like. Re- revealing in the sense of where she wanted to be, but also revealing in her absolute lack of understanding of, of any element of Star Trek. Mm. And in particular, the, the one that really set off uh, Colby was uh, she had to deliver the line, engage, to take the ship out. And she did it like, engage. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. He said, no, that's, no, sorry. No, it's not a, it's not esoteric, it's a command. I need you to give it as a command. We did another take, and it was engage. And then he was like, then he got, you know, it's like he'd reached a point where he was like, this isn't, this is not, I don't want to shoot this anymore. And he started talking to her. He said, no, it's got to be a command. You have to be an authority. And she said, you want me to talk like a man. You want me to be a man. I'm not a man. And they just got in this argument about what it, what was the difference between being a captain and being a man. Wow. And, uh, and that very afternoon, she wouldn't come out of her trailer, and 
everybody was sent home. And I, you know, had to talk to Rick Berman for the first time as a face-to-face, not just the guy in the room. And he asked what was going on, and there was a, you know, there was a little talk, and then she packed up her stuff and she left. Wow. And and uh, I think she had reached the same conclusion everybody else had reached. This was not her genre. This wasn't right. And it could have been ugly. She could have, you know, she could have forced to stay. They had mm-hmm. a contract. Sure. They could have sued her. But I think it was early enough in the process that uh, they decided that, you know, we'd, we've, we've come to a mutual understanding. This isn't working. And I think if they parted ways rather amicably, I think that, uh, you know, there wasn't anyone pointing fingers. And then the next thing, you know, we, you know, we were like, okay, so who's coming in as our captain? What's going to happen to us? Are we shutting down? What's our, our situation? We don't have money to shut down. We have to keep shooting. So first AD had to tear the schedule apart and schedule every scene he could possibly shoot that didn't have Janeway in it. And then we started shooting without a captain. And as we're shooting, we know that there's a casting process going on, and the word hit the street, and it hit us right away. Lindsay Wagner was going to be the captain because she was their number two choice. It's going to be Lindsay Wagner. Lindsay Wagner's going to come in the door. Well, when she was turned down on Star Trek, she signed on to do this, you know, $6 million man remake, you know, you know what happened to them thing. And uh, she couldn't get out of her contract. So wow. they decided to look again at this person they had some interest in, and Kate Mulgrew, and, and then they had, her, they, they had a second you know, audition with her. And uh, from what I was told, she nailed it. I mean, it was like instant recognition that this was the right person. <laughs> and she came on the set, and we reshot that, that scene that caused all the problems with the first scene we reshot. And she came on, and she was, like, in charge. From the second she stepped on the set, she was in charge of the set. And we all just went, oh, thank God. That's fantastic. Yeah. She was a theater person, too, and, and it showed because uh, uh, in, in my time as, as a second AD, one of the things, second second AD, one of my responsibilities is to keep track of, you know, when an actor is not on time, you know, to make sure to, to keep track of their time. And uh, she was never late. Never late. I mean, unbelievable track record. In L.A., at some point in time, you're going to get behind an accident. You know, sure. yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and at one time, I got a call, and she said, Mike, I'm not going to be on time. I'm going to be late. And I said, okay, Kate, we'll be ready for you. And I went to make up a hair, and I said, guys, Kate's going to be late. She's never, ever, ever late. Never. So I want you to do anything you can. Pull out the stops. I don't want the cameras to be waiting on her because I know she'll be just pissed for the whole day. And I don't want that. I wanted her to be able to walk in and be where she normally is at rehearsal. And they were like, okay, we're going to do it. We're ready to go. She was five minutes late. (laughs) (laughs) Made no difference. It was like, I I couldn't believe it. And the only other person who comes close to that track record is Scott Beckett, Mm. that lateness thing. Just unbelievable. Everybody at some point in time gets burned. You know, the alarm doesn't go off. Sure. Totally. Something happens. But somehow she she had, you know, a 99.9% scorecard. And I'm still amazed about it because I've never seen it since. Yeah, I, I'm having a hard time imagining um, Lindsay Wagner. Not that I don't love, you know, the $6 million. No, she was the bionic woman, almost like the $6 million woman. That's not the right thing. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the, the show, I think the show that kept her from doing it wasn't a bionic woman, you know, thing i think it was the six million dollar man and she was in it it was like a you know 20 years later six million dollar man 
That's and really she was, unfortunate. She couldn't, they wouldn't let her out of the contract. She was, and that was it. So, so she was off the table. That's the story I was told. Now, sure. I don't work in the office. I don't know if there's any truth to it all. That could all be just gossip on the set. But that's the story that I consistently heard. I heard it after the show was you know, wrapped and done. That story's been retold to me many times. So everybody believes it, whether it's true or not. It was probably the sleep number bed commercials that she took. That's probably what kept her awake from Star Trek. Man, it's really interesting how that kind of stuff plays out. I mean, we've heard stories about that with like, like last night I was on another podcast with Larry and Larry was talking about how um, at the last minute uh, Saul Rubinek came in to play Kivas Faggio literally at the very last second. And I can't imagine anyone else playing Kivas Faggio in TNG's right. The Most Toys, and and the same thing with Captain Janeway. I can't. I've seen, I've seen some video on YouTube of uh, not Genevieve, Genevieve, right? Genevieve. Jean, yeah. oh, and it's on. I think it's on the um, uh, the Blu-ray, uh, uh, the fancy set. Uh, you know, gotcha. for, for the first season. I think they actually have the out. They, they cut cut. They cut together the scenes that she was in. Yeah, it was it was hard to take, but uh, you know, I, honestly, I can't imagine anyone but Kate Mulgrew playing Captain Janeway. I mean, she was. She well, yeah, but you know, now uh, uh, television actors are worth their weight in gold. They they don't get a lot of time to develop character. They don't get to have all this rehearsal time that you do in a feature, or you know, getting a uh, talk back and forth about the script. They're handed the script. You're shooting it tomorrow. You know, we rehearse it once, we shoot it now. So they have to be on the ball all the time. And good ones, they own the characters. And the reason you can't imagine that is because she took ownership of the character. And mm. that's all you've ever seen. That's all you ever know. Now sure. it's not possible for you to see it another way. But you put another, someone of the same caliber, same thing would happen. You know, so it, casting's tricky because it has to be right in the first place. Right. But at the same time, really good actors they find what's right in that role and they make it they make it theirs and once it's theirs i mean do you do you feel that way about any of the captains like oh man i can't imagine scott back here why did they pick him i mean do you, do you think that no yeah no, no because, not at all because he made it his character it's him right. I mean, once once he put his mark on it that's it that's the character right and the writers react to that. They see how they watch those dailies, particularly early on, and they see what they like and what they feel is a strength, and they write to what they like. And that just, you know, it's like a you know, big positive spiral upwards. You know, good writing combined with, with good acting, it's, it's pretty hard to beat. Um, if you'd have told me that the guy from Malcolm in the Middle – was going to be the guy on Breaking Bad, right. based oh, yeah. on the description okay. of the characters, I would have said, what, really? Are you crazy? But once I've seen it, I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot. He's a really good actor. Right. He's not just Malcolm in the Middle's dad. Totally. You know, he's, he's a really good actor. He can, he can change gears. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've seen him on, uh, there's one episode of Malcolm in the Middle where uh, he learns that they're going to have another kid, and he's totally fine with it. But then he gets in the car and starts screaming why and crying. And I, I was like, oh, man, I, I think everybody has been at that moment. And anyway, he just, it was just he, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Anyway, that was a, a side story. It. Yeah, he totally did. I know that a lot of people from the outside, uh, outside the process think of uh, as these roles as not, you know, if it had been anyone else, it would have failed. And that's not really true. There, there are cases like that. I sure. think some of the Johnny Depp films I've seen, I, I don't think. 
Pirates would have amounted to anything if it wasn't Johnny Depp. But I think it's not it's 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 not a golden rule. There are, there are other people. It wouldn't have been the same character, but you wouldn't have known because some someone else would have done something different, and then you would have thought of anybody else in that role. You know. That's, yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's like an alternate universe that uh, you don't get to see, right? Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, the what if. You know, you can write the whole what if series for IDW. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So once uh, Yeah, I wrote a comic book for Next Generation. We, we were actually going to ask yeah, you about gonna, uh, yeah, when and for, for what DC, about right? And all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that that was an interesting experience because I had written a script for The Next Generation that I had submitted to David Livingston before I knew it was any in any way associated with the show. And it was rejected by Eric Stillwell. You know, I don't know who he was. Now I know him, and he's a great guy. Sure. And in his explanation, he basically said that they weren't taking new, they weren't taking outside submissions anymore. And what I hadn't realized, because I didn't know television production, was that the upcoming season was the last season that they actually were well into it, and they'd already planned out everything. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even possible to be considered. It was mm. I was way too late. And I, um, as a second AD, you, you often have to deal with visitors coming to the set and telling them, you know, all the rules, what a red light is, you know, don't make any sound and don't walk around, don't get in the actor's eye line, you know, a whole list of don'ts, you know, and you want to break them in easy. So you have to be sort of diplomatic about it so that they understand that, you know, this is going to be fun. But, and then the process, I met an editor from DC Comics, uh, Margaret Clark, and I told her she that I had written this script that nobody, you know, that didn't get made. And she said, well, I'll take a look at it, and if I think it's any good, why don't you take a shot at writing a comic book script of it? And she liked it, and I did, and she gave me a lot of really good notes, and I went through the whole process of uh, developing with an artist and, art, artist and learning, who didn't speak English, by the way, and, who, um, and learning the process of writing a comic book in the DC format. Later on, I would learn the difference between Marvel and DC, and I really enjoyed that process. Uh, they bought it, they made it, and then they bought three more stories from me, and then they lost the line, and, and that was the end of my comic book career right there. Aww. So I've always wanted to go, I still want to write for that market, but it's a much smaller market now. In the right. 90s, mm-hmm. it, was, it was big, but now you, you pretty much, you know, it, you, you have to already be established, and it's hard to break in. No, that makes sense. Yeah, it's too bad that uh, your script didn't uh, didn't make it there during the sixth season, so they could have replaced masks with uh, <laughs> with something better. Not to throw masks under the bus, but well, yeah, you yeah well, I, I, I apparently uh, had violated the cardinal rule in my script, which would have made it probably rejected unless it, you know someone thought we can fix this. Uh, and I didn't find that out until I worked with Margaret because I had one of the main characters actually die. Oh, wow. And and uh, she's like, you can't do that. And I mm. said, yeah, but in the end, it turns out, she goes, no, no, no. If an in-house writer has a death that turns out to be not a death, that's okay. But outside writers can't can't do that. What's the difference? Why is that? Because inside writers have the inside track. They're, they're you know, the part of Berman's team. They're already accepted and acknowledged. They, in the process of pitching this idea, probably went through the ringer hundred times before they agreed that they could do this without the fan base, you know, throwing a fit. Um, So when they want outside writers to write, what they want is something that they can put into production with relative ease. 
And so the main characters politically are the possession of the writing staff, and particularly the head of the writing staff, you know, your showrunner. So that, that idea belongs solely to them, and it shouldn't, it's just not allowed outside the, the blessing purview and concept of the, of the showrunner because you're talking about a main character. And you don't, you're not allowed to alter the fates or usually create different histories without already having the, the consent of the showrunner. Mm. So by being an outside person pitching in, you can't do that. You just can't. It'll, 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 it makes it a red flag right away. Oh, he wants to be more involved with the show than just being happy, oh, being a hired for gun okay. writer. Gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> yeah. No, that totally makes so sense. So I didn't know that. I was a kid. I was a punk kid. I didn't know that. So I changed it for the comic book. She told me the same thing. She said, we couldn't make it. We wouldn't let's make it. And, and, and then I said, well, I can change that. I can change, you know, I'll make the who, you know, a guest star. And she said, you can? And I rewrote it, and she said, oh, that, that works. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that. So I, I got it made, and, and I would have written it that way originally if it hadn't been, uh, if I'd have known the process. Sure. Totally. I thought I was rejected because I didn't like the story for a long time until I actually, actually met Eric Stilwell when I worked on the show. And he didn't particularly remember my script, but he said, oh, on that date, we weren't taking anything. Those were automatic rejections. We probably didn't read it. So that made me feel a little better. I was just going to say, is that better or worse? <laughs> better, though. That's cool. It's better. It's, it's better. I mean, if someone reads your work and goes, I'm not doing this piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's different than saying, I'm sorry, we, we, we can't take the time to read it. Because <laughs> totally. it still can be good. Totally. You know? Indeed. Yeah. There, were, there were actually two questions that I wanted to specifically ask you about um, Voyager. After after Kate Mulgrew came on uh, the set and became captain, what was the the camaraderie for the crew? I know that the TNG crew kind of, from what I understand, this is all secondhand, you know, knowledge, um, really hit it off and have, have stayed together and remained friends. And I know that Voyager has, but was that prevalent at the beginning? I think it was prevalent prior to her being brought on. Okay. It was a there was a camaraderie growing in just the early days between the rest of the cast. And they were already, in a way, joking around. And I think that, that part of the reason that they they were so, you know, going out of their way to be, you know, fun to be around and, and, and uh, being, you know, I don't want to say happy, but confident in their element was part of the fact that they knew that this crew was on edge because they just lost their lead. Mm. Oh, okay. And they if they could make it worse, by being on edge too. So I think that on a subconscious level, they were bound, they, they, you know, they, they, they bonded together uh, because they didn't know what was going to happen in three days. They didn't know who was coming through the door. So they, they sort of turned to each other and said, well, we got to shoot all our stuff without, without the captain. So we got to be at our best now. And I think that by the time that when Kate comes on board, that's already happening. And then mm. she just, all right. And I think that she brought such a relief to everybody. Just the first take, it was like, oh, God, <laughs> we got to cat. You know, so I think that that, uh, that just added to it. And the camaraderie between them was very strong. Um, there was some issues uh, when Jerry Ryan came on board um, that were – Flame, they were, you know, what, what in internet parlance we would call it, flaming. Mm. Um, 
but that what it was was TV Guide didn't help us out. Uh, they they did this big article about Jerry Ryan saving the show. Oh geez, you know, oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and that you know that's not what Jay didn't want to hear that, and Jerry didn't want to hear that, and you know it wasn't it wasn't happy for anybody. Yeah, and it would be funny because I would go from you know Kate's trailers on one end up by stage nine and and uh, way on the other side Jerry Ryan right uh, oh down by stage eight. And I would go back and forth between the trailers, and they would have a certain state as the as the show was progressing with Jerry on it. They were both upset, and Kate was upset a little bit, like saying every script seven to nine, every script seven to nine. What happened to the ensemble? And then I go down to Jerry, and Jerry goes another script of seven to nine. I was told I was going to be on an ensemble. <laughs> so they were both they were both complaining about the same thing, mm. um, and, and it took a while for them to to realize that. And I think once they got beyond a certain point, things, you know, things got the way they should have been at the beginning. But it took a while to, to overcome this attitude that was thrust on the show that, you know, that it was a, implying that it was a failure and that only Jerry Ryan could save it. Right. Yeah, totally. Which was totally, total bunkum. It wasn't what she felt. It wasn't what, it wasn't what anybody felt. It was just, you know, guys trying to sell magazines. Sure. Uh, but it but it hurt it hurt us on production for a while and then when we realized that that this was an attitude of outsiders not insiders things got better and that actually kind of leads into my next question uh, to dispelling you know um, rumor uh, and you know you may or may not want to answer it I'll, I'll just I'll throw it out there and you you let me know if we want to keep it in or not but there's a lot of stuff floating out out there about Robert Beltran and how much he disliked being on Star Trek. And we talked about this at BayouCon some, and you had an excellent explanation for his stance on Star Trek, and, and not saying it was positive or negative, but I think that you know us talking about that might dispel some of the the negative stuff that's out there um, about Robert's time. I, you know, not knowing what the negative stuff is, um, I only know stuff that spins back to me. Robert, what people probably don't know about Robert is that he is funny he's a quick wit and uh and really would shine in a comedic environment um but i don't think anyone you know you never saw that on, on any of the stuff i've ever seen him in they don't really ever play to his very quick sense of humor mm. um he he worked well with the crew but the one thing he did say to me outright is he said you know is that this isn't this isn't my thing. I don't understand science fiction. I don't understand the attraction to it. Um, I find it all to be sort of, you know, make believe, and it's hard for me to wrap my head around something that I don't think is impossible. So, from his point of view, yeah, there was a little bit of of a uh, I don't get it. Sure. But at the same time, he's he was a trained Shakespearean actor. So, and he was. If you ever see him on stage, you'll see how good he is. Um, and I think that he approached the role from that point of view. Sometimes you don't understand the language, so you have to you have to learn what the language is supposed to mean, and then act what it conveys, even though you're saying words that you don't necessarily know why you would speak that way. So I think he approached his techno babble like Shakespearean lines. But he was not attracted to. Uh, 
to the subject matter as a whole. Um, it's just not, it's not the cup, you know, not his cup of tea, but he is contract ran out and he came back, you know, he never, he stayed till the end. Mm, right. He had of plenty of opportunity to leave. He didn't leave. Um, he never, um, became unprofessional in any way. And he certainly had a, a strong understanding of who Chakotay was and he had his opinions and he would defend his opinions as to who Chakotay was. In the early goings, there were, there was some push for a, more physical romance between him and the captain and and both of them went up to Berman and said no it's not we really you know that would not be the right way to go it has to be a an underlying tension it can't ever reach a true point or or there's nothing to say and so they both were unified on a lot of major character concepts but you know it's it's true to say that that you know if he could have been in something of equal caliber and quality that had nothing to do with science fiction, he, he would have been happier. But it Just wasn't a Star- Yeah, but it wasn't like a. It, he didn't feel negatively about Star Trek in particular. It was just that genre that he didn't get. So, I think that's going to make a lot of fans feel better too. There's this thing in life, and, and and we live in a different world now than when I was a kid. When I was a kid, um, I was pretty fiercely independent kind of guy, you know. And I had friends who were what we would call left and friends who we call right, but they agreed on 90% of everything. And the few things they disagreed over, they disagreed over adamantly, but they constantly reminded themselves that even though I think you're wrong on this, and I, I respect your right to, to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And now we've reached this era where if you're, if you know, it's like we're teams. And if you're on that team and you say the same right. thing that two years ago I liked, well, now I can't like it because you said it. <laughs> And there's, there's no sense of, of what's best for the whole anymore. Totally. It's just what's best for our team. And, I, and it's, just, it's driving me freaking nuts. It's like, yeah. it's like the middle is being evaporated. Yeah. The same thing is true in, in life in other ways. If someone isn't positive about something, you, you can't just slam a label on them and say, oh, they hate that. Mm-hmm. There's this other zone called having really no like or dislike. There's this place called the middle where you know i'm not against it just not for it totally right. there is another place you can be and i think robert was in that place i don't think he would say oh science fiction nobody should watch that crap it'll rock your mind <laughs> he doesn't there's no extremity here it's just that what he said what he had said to me what he you know said to me pretty directly was that this isn't my thing this isn't what you know this isn't the genre that i would read if i was reading or i would watch if i was watching it's just not his thing. Totally. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, not at all. I've heard stories about him saying some things at conventions. I've never heard it. And I've heard uh, stories, but I don't know how much of it's true or how much of it is out of context or how much of it is that was one of those people, and there seem to be a lot of them now, who if you aren't on my team, you must be against me. Right. And And they have to turn you into an enemy because... You don't agree with me lockstep and barrel, therefore you're my enemy, which I think is killing us politically in this country right now. We've, we've got to get off that. Sure. Totally. I don't think people think that way. I don't, when I sit down and talk to people, I don't find that people think that way. They want them to go do something. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, and we aren't getting that right now. And I think it's sort of the same vein when we're talking about an actor who's in a position where they might be working on something that's not what they would uh, choose to do if they were independently wealthy and could do whatever they want. 
doesn't mean they're against it. it just means that it wouldn't it was not the first choice. Yeah, I'm glad you could shed some light on that because there is a lot of negative stuff out there. And I know that uh, Chakotay was actually one of my favorite uh, characters, and I always thought that Robert did an excellent job as Chakotay. Um, so you know, when I saw him at his happiest at Chakotay was uh, um, was when uh, the boxing episode. Mm. When we had Ray Ralston on, and, and oh, he, he was just, just his whole approach to it was like, you know, this is this is the stuff that mm. he likes, the inside the character stuff, and that I think he was just absolutely uh, elated at that for that particular. I can't remember the name of the episode, but um, that particular episode really spoke to him. When I think about uh, Voyager episodes, the one that that. Uh to me seems like the crew is or the the cast is having the most fun um is workforce part one and two which is one of my um absolute favorites i don't know if folks out there uh, remember that but they were the the entire crew of voyager was taken to an alien planet um and basically had their minds altered uh to where they can't, couldn't remember anything they were given a new life they were all workers on this planet that had too much work but needed workers right. um but you know they all got to needed, play. Different. Yeah, needed pretty much free workers. Right. Yeah, they were brainwashed. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting. There's a lot of interesting concepts that are, are approached in a science fiction environment um, where you you can talk about subject matter that if you talk about it directly, politicizes it. Right. So by being indirect, you can get away with it. I think DC Fontana was particularly gifted at that. You know, making a statement, but then being able to say to the censors, "Oh, this is about an alien. Oh, alien? <laughs> no, not planet. Oh, okay. Yeah. And not you know. And then after it airs, they go like, hey, "Are you talking about aliens?" <laughs> you know. So what we need is more sci-fi right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what we need is more sci-fi. I'm totally well, behind. Well, that. and we have we have more sci-fi than we've ever had on the air, but it's it's a different genre. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you see um, um, Roddenberry uh, Jr. Uh, Gene Roddenberry Jr.'s uh, a piece where he got to interview uh, George Lucas. Yeah, yeah. In Trek Nation, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, we sure did. I found that interview fascinating because uh, because Lucas made it very clear that you know he he doesn't think there's a the only comparison that he can make that he could make was that because Star Trek existed, Star Wars existed, mm. and because Star Wars existed, Star Trek came back to life. <laughs> but he he said, "I'm making a summer fantasy film. I'm making a science fiction fantasy." And Star Trek had something, they wanted to say something. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So he, he, he doesn't think that they're, you know, they're all that comparable. One, one of the things that I get the most gripes about when I go to convention about the, the newest Star Trek, the Abrams, um, you know, version, is that they feel that it's gone into fantasy and that mm-hmm. they're not going to say anything anymore. And uh, and I, I am of the attitude of, you know, hey, the first movie out. Come on. Right. <laughs> You have to you have to wow him, right? It has to be action. See what he does in the next one, you know, and and don't be don't be so quick to judge. He only gets you know ninety minutes to reintroduce all these characters. I thought he did a great job. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Totally. If you look at Wrath uh, of Khan, there's not really a a message there other than Ricardo Montalban's amazing chest. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, it's no, I I sort of disagree there. though, because I think I think Wrath of Khan was was. Uh, Played on a, on a sub, subtle concept of of the concept of playing God, mm, you know, because right. you've got Khan himself who thinks he should be God, 
and you've got these scientists who are unlocking a key to be God, and you've got the people in the middle who are wondering, you know, have you know, it's like McCoy, I think, has the line about, have we made, you know, the, the greatest creation device or the greatest weapon ever made? Um, so it's, I think that there were, there is a subtext in the Rathacon story about responsibility and about godlike powers and, and about, you know, because everyone has some moment of irresponsibility in there where they played God because Captain Kirk confined him to a planet with his people never checked on him again, you know? Sure. So they suffered when things went wrong. He didn't even know things went wrong. So he played God and then didn't do anything about it. And you've got, you know, you've got the doctor who built the bomb that will destroy your planet and then turn it into whatever they want. You know, so that's playing God on a certain level. And you've got Khan insisting that he is the superior intellect and should, shouldn't, you know, he should be in charge. And he's got his God complex. So I think there's more in the subtext there about power and feeling absolute, you know, like a, like a sense of divinity. If you actually have power and think that you know what's right, like you're somehow channeling God that leads to disasters. And I think that was sort of the subtext theme of that entire movie. That's an excellent I, analysis of it, actually. I totally missed that. Yeah, <laughs> I, no. I that. No, yeah. that's fantastic. And if you ever feel like writing anything like that, we do have a small Star Trek website. <laughs> for, your, for your perspectives. From that. And, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Kind of wrapping it all together. <laughs> I think science fiction is at its best when it's saying something about something else. Sure. Oh, yeah. I do, too. And, uh-huh. Yeah, and, and 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 that's one of the reasons I just love Battlestar Galactica, yes. you know, because uh, Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica, because it it had it really said a lot about the interrelationships of people of different cultures forced to share a limited space. So the whole thing, and then they keep talking about going to Earth, going to Earth. But for me, the whole series as a whole was a was a about Earth. We're be, we're not the big right. huge planet we used to be where. It's, you know, 20 days to travel across the great desert and you see people of a different skin color and like, what are they? We're now a tiny little place. Yeah, you know, right. everybody's in each other's business now and we all can know what's going on really fast. And we have to move to a dynamic where um, we have more tolerance, which, which I think is also one of the primary messages of Roddenberry Star Trek. Right. Is you if we don't adapt, adaptability, survivability, and the adaption we have to make is acceptance that we're not always going to agree. Totally, and we got to find out where we do, and emphasize that, and take less on where we don't. Totally. And, and Ron worked briefly on Voyager, right? And he, from what I understand, again, yeah, second yeah. second uh, hand knowledge here, but he wanted to explore some of that stuff that he explored in Battlestar. On Voyager. That's what I was told. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just tell people to watch Barge of the Dead. That's that's the kind of thing mm. we would have had if Ron Moore had been in charge. And yeah. look at uh, Battlestar Galactica, um, in terms of the relationship between civilians and military, he wanted, uh, from what I was told, I've never talked to him, I don't know. Right. But from what I was told, he was pitching a, a military ship as opposed to an explorer ship hmm. with that kind of military order and uh, and the Maquis being more of a problem 
I guess you could say more Cylon-like, mm. um, more more of a problem for the military ship because they are the enemy, but they have skills we need, and we don't believe in slavery. So how do we hold our morals and yet keep these guys under control? And and he wanted it to be more conflict-oriented. That could have been really interesting. Yeah, but the network didn't like it. Yeah, well, you know, honestly, though, I'm kind of glad that it didn't because I am a big Voyager fan, but then we also got Battlestar uh, True. in turn. Yeah. So I think that would have happened anyway. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of, uh, of Voyager, we should probably talk a bit about Enterprise. Now, you worked the full seven seasons of Voyager, and did you guys immediately transition into Enterprise or? Yeah, we didn't. We didn't. We took um, Jerry Fleck, who was the first AD. Uh, I had done some first, yeah, first did a couple episodes on Voyager, but was still primarily the key second AD. And he and I, I think they gave us two days off. Oh wow! No kidding. And then, <laughs> and then we were then we were prepping Enterprise. And when Voyager was torn out, they were gutting the sets as soon as the film check cleared. Wow! Um, and and it was in the days of, you know, uh, take the sledgehammer to it and throw it in the grinder for recycling oh, wow. and sawdust. Um, the, the idea, what happened in reality is a lot of the actors and other people, props people, lots of people, uh, were, were wanted to grab their little piece of the set, the mm-hmm. little thing that they could take home. Um, you know, I was gifted a couple things that were on their way to the dumpster. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, some of this material then showed up for sale. Oh, bummer. And I think Paramount became aware that they threw away money. Right. And Enterprise was very different at the end. It was, you know, I remember the wardrobe people telling me that they have to put every clothing into a, a sealed bag, label what it is, and punch it in the computer. And uh, Tom had called me and said, you know, I, I had to talk to this guy today about, I've got a bunch of dirty underwear here that <laughs> people were using. Well, you know, you're telling me you want me to put this in a bag and label it? <laughs> Or can I can I toss it like we normally would? And he was told no. Oh wow! Put it in the bag yeah. and label it. <laughs> so they literally didn't throw out anything, <laughs> and that was to set up the, the Christie's auction. Right. You know, um, and uh, the, you know, of course, the irony is the the show they had the most pieces of was the least popular show. Right. Yeah. 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 So was it the entire crew from Voyager that transferred into Enterprise, or? Was there a process? Pretty much. Of, there, okay. there were some people who had changed. Um, we changed, uh, you know, there are some people in creative positions that they feel a need to change because they don't want it to, to look too much like the other one. Right. Um, so there were some changes in the writing team. There were, um, I remember, I think Danger, um, yeah, Danger Matt alone was the stunt coordinator on Voyager. And then Vince Dedrick Jr. was the stunt coordinator on Enterprise, they wanted a different look. They wanted a different feel for the stunts. Um, so they changed horses. I think they changed some some heads of you know who was showrunner, and they, I think they changed a couple you know a couple of key positions here and there. But for the most part, you know, you're talking about eighty five percent. It was just a shift over. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah, and I think well. I know that Manny Cotto took over in the fourth season. Was he working on the show? He, he didn't really take over in the fourth season. And, uh, uh, I mean, uh, well, actually, uh, let me rephrase that. He came on board in the third season. 
that's when he becomes a staff writer. Gotcha. Okay. And and some of the stuff he wrote was instant, instant ringing bells with fans. And and I think you know uh, uh, Brandon and Berman saw it too. Uh, immediately. Right. You know that this this guy, he he's got a gift for this. And they and they started giving him some responsibility, and then they made the determination. And I also think that uh, I think it was Ken Biller who moved on to something else, and that so they had an opening for for the uh, you know the head writer, sort of the, sort of you know Rick was really ultimately the showrunner. Right. Everyone answered to Rick, and and Brandon was sort of the nuts and bolts showrunner. But when you talk about showrunner in the sense of the person who's running the writing team, they decided to give Manny the. Uh, fourth season and i think they were wise to do so i think right. it's our, our best season there are some awesome episodes uh, in that season for sure absolutely and then it's the one that i you know i meet people at conventions oh, i gave up on start i didn't like enterprise after the first season i hear that a lot uh, occasionally i hear people who just that was my favorite you know they loved it beginning to end but you know for the you know 60 percent of the time it's, I, I didn't watch after the first season and i've told so many people you know pick up the dvd for the fourth season you won't understand the first episode. You won't understand the last. But just all the ones in between. Yeah. Yeah, just totally. watch those. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, and 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 I've gotten emails. I've gotten you know little little notes saying, "I wish I'd known." Or that's the show I would have watched. And you know, uh, I, I didn't ex- I didn't expect it to be good, and it would have been one of you know one one of my favorites. I think we started to turn the channel on that. Some of the problems with being too much like its previous. The structure with the Zindi storyline, and then I think we really hit our stride in the fourth season. And of course, by then, you know, too many people had left. It wasn't going to make it. Yeah, and talk about a, a cast that gelled. I think that Voyager had some of the best on-screen camaraderie, and we've seen them at conventions. A lot of the the guys like Dominic and uh, and Connor, they're Maybe just Enterprise, like. You said Voyager. Oh, that's okay. yes. Yeah, sorry, I meant Enterprise. And I mean Voyager did too, but specifically Enterprise. It seemed like that cast really gelled uh, together. So like they all, those casts, um, yes, uh, it's, it's absolutely true. The Voyager cast really gelled, and Enterprise cast really gelled. Um, my personal experience, you know, so this is the AD and me talking, is that your casts tend to act an awful lot like they're number ones. Hmm. So whoever is number one mm-hmm. on the call sheet. However they act, that's what you're going to get. Gotcha. Because once they see they can get away with it, then they'll all start doing it, especially <laughs> start when you hit, hit season like three. Um, so the advantage of both of those shows was they had very strong, very responsible, very professional number ones. And that attitude pervade throughout the cast. So, you know, big advantage. I've done a few shows since then. Not so much, yeah. you know. <laughs> Not so much, uh, because you know, once once if you got a shitty attitude from the guy in, on top, then then everyone else will realize. So oh, I can have a shitty attitude too. Yeah. And pretty soon they think that's what they're supposed to have, and that's what you get. Yeah, we've heard from other um, cast and crew that had been on Enterprise as well, and they everyone seems to have the utmost respect for Scott Bakula um, in his professionalism and. The story I like to tell about Scott, and I, I told this at the convention, so I hope I'm not, you know, beating a dead horse. But the the first time that I that I did a second unit, as first AD in a second unit, 
was the scene where he goes up, they lose gravity, and he floats up in the shower. Mm, yeah. And the water suspends in the air, and then he falls, and the gravity comes back on. And so that was very elaborate. You know, there's, there's a big rig to go with that. And so they put it on a second unit because it was just too much time and dedication to put on the main unit. And uh, Marvin Rush, the director of photography, who's now doing um, Hell on Wheels, by the way, and just hmm. beautiful, just beautiful stuff he's doing. I mean, he's like, he is, he's at his best right now. His stuff he's doing is just gorgeous. Um, anyway, uh, Marvin Rush <laughs> came up to me and he said, Hey, you know, this is fairly early in the process, you know, and he said, you know those actors, those kind of actors that come in and they think they know everybody else's job and how they're supposed to do it? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I think this guy actually knows everybody else's job. <laughs> and and uh, I said, he, he actually, I mean, not just, I mean, he really does. So he comes on the set, and we're, we're setting up for our second unit, and he goes over to the key grip and the construction grip. And he starts asking them about, you know, I'm just making it up because I can't do it, but about joists and rivet points and suspension lines and the power of cables. And just, just he was talking in total grip beats, how things are built, how is this built, what makes it stay together, how is that going to hold me up. And they were talking back and forth like he was another grip. <laughs> he, he was in their language, and they knew it within a couple sentences. Oh, this guy, he knows. He's not just throwing words that someone said to him once. He knows what, you know, this kind of joint is, you know. And so after he talked to him for about two minutes, he turned to me and he said, all right, I'll do it. And Because <laughs> he understood how it worked. He could do amazing things I've never seen anybody do uh, ever. I've heard stories of other people doing it, but I've never seen it except for him. And the thing that amazed me the most is the bridge of the ship was like in three different tiers. So you couldn't easily roll a dolly in there. And when you wanted to do moving shots, you had to go out on a long crane, javelin crane, and use a remote hot gear system with a lens that was variable so that you could change your lens sizes on the fly. And you would fly this crane around, and you'd work with second team, and you'd set up all these marks, and you'd practice, practice, practice. And then the actors come in, and you, you do a one more practice, and you start shooting. And uh, on the rehearsal, sometimes, you know, Scott would come forward and you'd hear, ah, from behind the wall, where the uh, operator who's sitting at a monitor with two wheels is, you know, seeing that the frame doesn't line up right. And he'll stop, and he, met, this happened many, many times, not just once, many, many times. And he would turn and he would say, what is it? And he'd go, oh, you're just, it's just, it's off frame. He goes, well, what size lens have you got there? <laughs> and the assistant camera would go, uh, at this point, we're on a, and it's not like, you know, a, a primal, it's not like 35, you go, we're on a 57. And then you'd see him think for a second, you're 57, I should be like this. And he would just adjust his body just a little bit wow. and move, and then okay. you'd hear outside the wall go, oh, this was without seeing a monitor. Wow. Just in his head. Oh, my gosh. And he would do this time and time again. He was so aware of, of where everything, should, what it should look like, that he huh. could do it without seeing it. Yeah, that's crazy. That's awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. Wow. It was awesome. Yeah. And, 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 and it wasn't like a fluke. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't keep track of the numbers of times that he would, you know, move his shoulder or, or adjust his hand or, or, or just, you know, do a slight little twist of his body. And that would be because he saw in his head what the problem was that, oh, I'm blocking, oh, I'm causing this shadow. I just, let's do this. And, and then it would never happen again. You know, it would be like he, he would hit that mark perfectly. Oh, wow. Like, like, on it. Yeah, in terms of uh, athleticism and acting, he was pretty phenomenal. 
you know, towards the end um, of Enterprise, everybody knows that that it is coming to an end. And I'm sure the mood on the set was was somewhat somber because, you know, it's an end of a run and it's a, a run that's shorter than it should have been. But when the fan community kind of gathered together and really tried to push for a fifth season of Enterprise, uh, was that like a was that like an inspiration for the crew? Was it a boon in the spirit of the crew? Did did it have any I, impact? I can't I can't say that it that it did um, because it, there's a point in time where you know the water's gone it's gone under the bridge right and it's it, and it's great that there were people lined up outside of Paramount and and everybody at some point in time went out there took a look and but really. <laughs> No one's going to write a new check. You right. know, there's no, there's, the, the money's been spent. We're on the last episode. It's over. And, and there's a, a, the reality of it, you know, is there. And there's no, um, you could try to take the position of denial. It's not going to do you any good. Right. Yeah. You sure. have to move on to, to, you know, you have to start job hunting. One of the hardest things for me coming out of a show that I was on for 11 years is that I, I would talk to people and say, hey, I'm looking for work. And they go, what, you're still in the business? Oh, I thought wow. you oh, man. And I'm like, no, I've just been on the same thing for 11 years, right. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like starting over in, sure. in many ways. Sure, sure. No, that makes and sense. It took me several years to get on a show that had the same um, attitude on the crew's part of, of working together, of, of um, you know, sharing an environment. Hmm. Uh, and, and that was make it or break it. It was, it was like you know we finally got into an area where it was it was really fun. The, the executives were involved. The the writers were sharp, and everybody wanted to be there. You know, and it was it was just a, it was a very fun environment. And I was sort of sad that we didn't get our last eight episodes to actually tell the story of what happened at the Olympics. Mm. But but our numbers weren't good enough, so we we sort of had to stop short. Oh man. Yeah, that's unfortunate. It sounds a lot like uh, Enterprise, even though Enterprise got to run out its uh, for you know full last season. Um, yeah, sounds very familiar. Now, speaking of the last season, more specifically, the last episode. Um, I know that that was mine. What's that? That was mine. That was mine. I was I was the last first. Yeah. Yeah. I closed it out. I closed. I, I literally did the not only the last episode, but I did the last second unit too. So. Oh wow. Oh, wow. I was there. I was there when the uh, equipment was put away for the last time. Oh, oh my wow. gosh! No Jeez. kidding. Yeah, that was a tough show to shoot. Uh, you know, you know. Thank God that you know, Marina and, and Frakes are are good people, mm. um, and understood the difficulty of the situation and, and likewise our cast too, because uh, that, that particular decision to shoot that one as the last episode could have been a lot more hostile. Than, mm. You know, it could have been an angry set, but it wasn't, it was, it was a sadness. And I, and I think that there was a, a feeling, you know, on some people's part, and I would say most people's parts that this should have been an episode in the middle of the season. Cause it's not like right. it's a bad episode. It just was a strange way to end the show. Yeah. The second to last episode should have been the last episode. Yeah, that's actually good to know because we've heard scuttlebutt that you know some of the cast wasn't happy and then it was a. Um, yeah, but you know, we're end. going back to that same thing, you know, where right. when I, when 
there, you know, there's a positive, there's a negative, and, and people think, oh, if they weren't positive, they must have been negative. Right. No, they were in between. They weren't happy about it. They weren't throwing shit fits. You know, they weren't screaming and yelling. It, it was just like, you know, they were disappointed. Sure. Totally. But it wasn't, it wasn't taken out on anybody. You know, there wasn't, there weren't angry, you know, actors running up and banging on, you know, Rick Berman's door saying, why did you end it this way? It was just like, you know, it was just, a, it was like, well, you know, this isn't what I thought it'd be. Right. And, and I think that the, that the fans who don't like the last episode being the last episode, and they've turned it into, oh, they were so angry. Mm. Well, they weren't. They imposed a lot they, of they were, they were They were dissatisfied that this was the last episode. Yeah, we they weren't were even too. dissatisfied with the episode. They were just dissatisfied that it was the last episode. Yeah, we we were too. Absolutely, I think a lot of fans were really. I mean, Enterprise. You know, I'm one of the. No, I shouldn't say one of the few. I'm I'm a fan who really actually liked and and since rewatching the third season, actually really liked the Zindi arc. I like it more the second I'll, I'll time. I'll tell you why too. First time. I'll tell you why. Um, when you stretch out a story that is going to run for 24 episodes or 22 episodes, whatever it was, and you wait week after week after week, it, it gets to you. Mm. Yeah. But in the modern era, you can sit down and watch them all in a couple of days. A couple oh, of that's... Maybe that's why I liked it the second time. The first time I thought, sure. when, when I was rethinking that recently, I was like, okay, so why didn't I like it as much the first time? I thought right. maybe it was it hit too close to home with everything that was going on in the world at that time. Maybe it was just too reminiscent of it or whatever, but you're right. I think no, it was totally because it. I could watch it quicker the second time around and it, it didn't, you know, tug at my heartstrings so long, you know? Yeah. yeah you know, I write um, comic book reviews for um, um, uh, examiner.com graphic novels. And occasionally I get sent these graphic novels that collect uh, comic books together that they should never have collected together because when you read them a month apart, it was sort of fun, but when they're all put together, you realize, hey, these are the same joke, and every you know every ten pages, the same bit, the same gag, and it and it doesn't, it just doesn't work collected mm-hmm. as it does apart. And I think our third season is sort of the opposite. And it's like watching Twenty Four. You sometimes get really antsy. Right. You know, what's gonna happen next? Ah, but when you get the DVD, you can watch Twenty Four and Twenty Four if you want. You know, <laughs> you, you you don't have that 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 suspension the plus side of that is that you get to you get to see the story as a whole the downside of that is you you pick up on every mistake they made mm. oh yeah um yeah. because you you didn't notice it when it was a week apart but when it was a minute apart yeah that's what we're doing 24 in particular now, a lot of la people like you know they watch 24 and they go hey uh, i believe that they just went from los angeles to uh northern to chatsworth northern la at 5 p.m in 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> without a helicopter this is not right. possible <laughs> yeah we're doing the exact same thing with lost right now because we never watched it originally and uh, we're watching it uh, on netflix and uh, totally picking up on <laughs> the, the slight changes it's only supposed to be you know 30 days or whatever and it's actually been two seasons right, so, right. Uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> we're the exact same thing yeah yeah, and that's part of that is the speed of watching it, you know. Right. But yeah. I think that the um, I think for the third season of of uh, Enterprise, it's a it's a it's a blessing. It worked. Yeah. The one thing you're missing, though, the one thing you're missing by watching it on Netflix and not getting the box set, is uh, 
the commentary tracks. Right. We actually do have Enterprise uh, on DVD. On so DVD, we, yeah. We have that, but not Lost. So, yeah. Do you have season three? We do. How have the, you heard comment- my commentary track? No. no. Oh, my gosh. No, we haven't. Do you have the gray one, the gray box? Yep, we sure yep. do. Yep. North Star. That's what we're doing next. Totally. Okay. <laughs> For sure. No, that's Yeah, awesome. I'm the only below-the-line person... Uh, that they ever let do a commentary track. And I begged for, um, what was it, eight years? (laughs) (laughs) Eight years I begged them. I said, let me do one of these. Ah, no, fans aren't into that. They want want writers and actors. I said, come on, let me do just one, just one. And unfortunately, uh, in the history of that episode, North Star, one of our beloved, you know, first ADs who'd been on Star Trek all the way back to the next generation, Jay Fleck, he passed away mm-hmm. unexpectedly, suddenly on Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. and I had to take over for him. And and what was and he was my mentor. I mean, mm-hmm. I I was learning. He was the guy who was teaching me how to do this right. Oh wow! And I, you know, it was a big loss for me personally, and and it was a, a big loss for the crew. I've never seen them cancel a day of shooting because, you know, an AD passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no way that crew could shoot. It was like. They were just they were just devastated. Oh wow! So we actually stopped shooting for one day. We didn't do anything, and then we came back and got back into it. And uh, because of that situation, when I described that to the same guy at Toolbox that I'd been pitching, please let me do one of these. You know what that was like, and how I noticed that things changed after that. I noticed that you know people started pulling their digital cameras out, and everyone started taking pictures of each other, and. And there was a, like a realization of your own mortality, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was very different. Well, he decided that was a pretty good angle, so he he signed me on to do the commentary. It doesn't pay, but he he signed me on to do the commentary track. And when I went in to record it, the uh, the exec over him had that look on his face, arms folded, looking at the booth, like, <laughs> uh, you know, he had the, you know, I don't want to know if I should cuss. So he's like, what the heck is? <laughs> this guy doing here nobody knows who this guy is and then i had actually practiced the night before i watched the show and practiced commentary track so we did it in, in one take and at the end of the take uh the editor said you know you said that you used the sepia kind of tone but i think it may be pronounced sepia uh so i want to just re-record that one sentence but that's the only thing i think we need to fix here. oh wow so I did. I re-recorded the one sentence to say CBN. They put in whichever one they turned out to be right. And uh, and afterwards, the same guy who was giving me the stink eye was telling me that that may have been the best commentary track in terms of, of it being done in a single shot, saying things that he'd never heard people talk about before. And it actually held his interest. And he said, we should have done this a long time ago. <laughs> That's awesome. So everybody yeah. out there, if you have the... Uh the enterprise box set or if you just want to get the dvd from netflix uh definitely check that out we will be after this oh, yeah totally so yeah yeah i don't know i don't know if in future editions or i don't know what happens i know on the initial publication the gray box set uh-huh. that's the one that i was in yeah Very the one cool. with all the extra features david trotty had this cool thing about you know because he worked on a couple of the movies and I mean, there was a lot of good little features in that particular box set. Yeah, I've watched a lot of those, but for some reason I didn't uh, think to listen to any of the commentary at all. And I usually am the guy that dives deep into a DVD box set and watches and listens to everything, but we'll definitely do that. So, Well, I, I guarantee you that it won't be like other commentary tracks. Um, 
because it, it, it's not from an actor's perspective or a writer's perspective or a mm. producer's perspective. It, it's from somebody in the trenches. And uh, I talk about things that, that most people don't think about. Right. No, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And that's why we wanted to have you on here because we knew oh, yeah. speaking to you at BayouCon, we knew that this was the kind of stuff that fans want to hear. And I this is. Hear it, yeah, yeah. I, wish I, was, I wish there was more in the con circuit a little bit because I have a couple of really well developed uh, presentations, right. but I don't. I just don't know how that's negotiated. And, and the only way I ever come across them is, you know, like I was at in Vegas for a creations convention and the host of the Biocon was there and he came to me and said, would you do this at my convention? Yeah. And the only way I ever fall into these is if I, you know, someone who, who has already seen it is responsible for one. Right. They're, then all of a sudden they're interested. But it's a hard sell. You, you know, you can't, you can't go to an agent and say, you know, they'll say, who's that? You know, it's not like you, you, you have name value. Which is a bummer you know? because all of your stories and all the info you have and right. everything else is so interesting precisely because we've not heard it before, you know? And, so, you know which like, I hear all the time. Which I hear all the time. The same thing, and I'm not the only person because I know that Ron Moore, uh, the visual effects guy Ron Moore, not the writer Ron Moore, uh, I know that he does a, a handful of conventions and it's, and it's grown and grown because word got around mm-hmm. that, you know, this is, this is something we don't talk about I too bet, much. Yeah. And whenever I do a, a creations, whenever I, sh- I know I'm going to be at the creations here in, in uh, um, LA and I'm scheduled to be in the Vegas one in 13 because oh, cool. they sort of know me and they know what I do yeah. and they, and they, they now understand, Oh, why should we have him? Oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. And everyone who comes to what I do, always, always, I always tell them now go find, you know, the organizers <laughs> and tell them how much you like this. Uh, because it's not the normal fare. But something's changed in the post-Abrams world and the conventions, because uh, I went two years ago. I know you went to the last one, and you can tell me if it's still the same, but two years ago, there was suddenly people under 35 again. Yeah. yeah uh, and they, and they, had a, they had a real knowledge and an interest, and, uh, and, and they dressed up, and, they, and it was like someone pumped life into this, and the only person you can give that credit to Abrams. Right. Yeah. No, that's totally true. Yeah. yeah I think uh, Larry tells the story. Larry Nimichek tells the story that um, he went to the, he goes to all of them in Vegas, obviously, but the one directly after the release of Abrams movie in 2009, he took a quick poll and about 90% of the people were there for their first convention and came because of JJ uh, Abrams. And we haven't yeah. seen it decrease. I mean, we've uh-uh. seen a lot more, younger younger fans even like kids because we were there as bye bye robots selling you know our fine art uh, uh licensed reproductions and posters and stuff and we had tons of kids coming up to the booth that were huge star trek fans and i'm right. thinking you know and had discovered it recently exactly right. uh-huh. yeah so yeah. it's it's yeah, really you cool. know it's funny because I, I did the thing with the uh, uh you know just sort of a, an independent poll some of the people at the at at that creations convention where I saw, you know, just talking to people who came up to me and, and the impression that, that I got was that they watched the Abrams and then thought, geez, you know, my dad and mom used to watch, I don't know, when did I watch that old show? And they got hooked in mm. to something yeah. that they had already dismissed as being old. Right. And, and they, they found out, Hey, this is sort of fun. Uh, and I noticed it in my residual checks too, because you know, as an AD, you get this, this tiny residual. And I had gotten residual once, and this is this is not exaggerating. 
I got a residual once from Star Trek for 10 cents. <laughs> and then the government took two cents out for federal taxes and two cents out for state taxes. And they took one cent out for FICA. By the time it was all done, the check was written for one cent. <laughs> and that's what, I, that's what I think of, you know, when, I, when Star Trek had reached a certain longevity. I was like, okay, so that's occasionally, um, if I ever get enough money to buy a pizza, I go, woohoo. Um, <laughs> and then out of the blue, Couple, uh, a year and a half ago, I got a check for six hundred dollars. This before taxes, right? And I, I was looking at it going like they made a mistake. They paid me the director's residual, <laughs> they didn't pay me the assistant director's residual. And so I did. I looked at the charts because they give you the sheet as to why you get this money. Well, it was all from the sale of the series as a all of it, the whole block, to Amazon and to Netflix. Mm. Oh, and apparently they got a lot of hits. Very cool. Yeah. So, so I think what you have is a generation now of kids who watch the Abrams movie, go to their computers, not their TVs, pop on their Netflix or go to Amazon, and they're watching this stuff for the first time in their media, in their, in their method. And, uh, and they're discovering something that may have fallen into the, you know, my dad's got a DVD for that stuff on a shelf. And they never would have watched it if it hadn't been for this new arm of distribution. Totally. Yeah. No, that's yeah. totally true. I've actually done that with several old uh, TV series. I'm a huge Rockford Files fan now because of Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> if you were wondering if I was going to play the, uh, yeah. bring the Rockford. Uh, yeah. I, every yeah. episode, I try to mention He's something got about the Rockford, the Rockford Files, Files in there somewhere. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah love well, the Rockford. It, Files. It's a great. He, he was so good. He was perfect. This, oh, you know, yeah. There's some perfect casting right there. Yeah, totally. Him and yeah. Stuart Margolin. Yeah, you know, that lost and... Tom, Tom Selleck's career. Rockford Files did. Did it really? I didn't know that. Yeah, because no, they, they put him in a couple guest roles on there, and they said, this guy's great. Let's, he, could, he could headline our next Hawaii project. Oh, wow. That's too funny. And there you I go. I was a huge Magnum P.I. Yeah. fan. Oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't get enough of that show. Yeah, so let's stop talking about Magnum P.I. and start talking more <laughs> about the Rockford file. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Magnum P.I. is an interesting history in, 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 uh, in film history or television history because it was one of the earliest um, non-related crossovers that was ever done was between his show, which had a real young audience, and Murder, She Wrote, which had a really old audience. <laughs> and Angela Lansbury, you know, st- shows up with a crime she's got to solve in Hawaii. He's helping her. No kidding. But to no see how kidding. it ended, you had to go watch Murder, She Wrote, and you had to go over and watch this old folk show. You know, wow. what a crack it, it was, And after that... That show became a top twenty show. Wow! So a whole bunch of Magnum people crossed over and said, "Yeah, this show isn't. You know, this is sort of cute." And they and enough of them stuck that it moved it from a from a, a forty to a twenty. Too funny. They should have explored yep. that with Miami Vice and Golden Girls because they were both in Miami. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> There's certain crossovers I would just I, I just think would be a, a, would be so you know we can't do mashups and video as much as, as we can with music right but it, there are just certain shows that you go like man i wish those two somehow could get together. <laughs> man it'd be too funny yeah we you know i gotta say we've thoroughly enjoyed oh this my gosh, interview yeah, totally. and i know that people are totally gonna dig it because it's the like you were saying it's someone in the trenches that can give a really good inside perspective um to the beloved shows that people have voyager and, and enterprise and we really appreciate yeah. uh, you being on the show with us. And we always end with one question, um, and you may have been asked this before, but out of all of Trek, since you said you were a Star Trek fan before, uh, what's your favorite episode of Star Trek? 
Oh, that's hard. Because they're written for so many different, uh, you know, it's like th- there are tones that at certain times that right. this speaks to you and at other times this speaks to you. I mean, when you, when you talk about just an opportunity for, for a beauty of a, of a story, you know, you got City on the Edge Forever. You, know, right. you just can't, it's hard to walk away from that one. Uh, but when you talk about trying to wrap your mind around an enigma, you got Yesterday's Enterprise. So I, it's hard for me. There's the one that I can never remember the name of the show. There's two of them. I never remember the names because I'm terrible with the names of the episodes that I really enjoyed on a personal level that were not shows that I worked on. Mm. Okay, so I, I sort of I'm just sort of dismissing because I have a different take on. When I look at them, I see things you don't see. I know, like, oh, I was standing right around that corner. Oh, wow, that's the day that that <laughs> thing fell over. So I have a hard time getting How completely into the story because <laughs> um, I, I look at it in a different way, sure. and I can't. You can't turn it off. You try and you try, but you can't because you you just know. Um, you know that's the oh that's the day we put a stuntman in the hospital. You know it, you can't turn that off. So I think more about from a viewer's point of view, the ones that I didn't work on. And there were two that were in the Next Generation family that, that really appealed to me. And one is where Picard uh, is hit by that probe and lives an entire lifetime, mm, and that's the, the way light. of being remembered. Yeah, yeah, inner, that's it. Beautiful storytelling. Absolutely. Is it a big actioner? No. Did a lot of stuff blow up? No. But beautiful storytelling, opportunity for the actors to act. And the other one that, that I, I particularly like for a similar reason uh is the one where you there's the one alien race i think it was paul winfield played the role that can only speak in like colloquialisms darmok darmok yeah, yeah. is that yeah. The, what's the title is that the title i believe it's darmok, just darmok yeah. yeah i like that one too yeah cool. yeah, yeah yeah and he keeps saying you know darmok at so-and-so at such and such and by the time you're done you understand what it means right yeah. and and it's just to me it was like we never explored enough um, the alienness because it's hard to do in television. But I, I think one of my favorites uh, from Deep Space Nine and probably my runaway favorite from Deep Space Nine remains the pilot um, of you know, the shows that were actually shot, Dismissing the Cage. Uh, it was the best pilot. Mm. And it dealt with this concept of nonlinear existence. And uh, that's very science fiction. Yeah, that's and Star Trek, Star Trek didn't, you know, when when you see two ships coming at each other in Star Trek, they both seem to be upright. You know, they, they didn't go much into, you know, physics. You always yeah. hear the sound of stuff out in space. So we, we edge towards fantasy here. You know, you really wouldn't hear anything in outer space. You wouldn't hear any explosions, you know. It's a vacuum, you know, and you can't really bank a ship in space because there's no... There's nothing to bank against. There's right. no water. There's no air. You would just turn and continue to go in the same direction. Mm-hmm. You know, but so, you know, they look like airplanes, and it's like, you know, it wouldn't, wouldn't work that way. Uh, so you have to turn a blind eye to the physics of this kind of environment and instead decide if you like the story. And when it comes to me, those are the stories I like. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's yeah. actually the first time somebody's said the pilot from uh... – from Deep Space Nine, that's really interesting. It's a it's a great episode, um, but yeah. And the whole baseball, I mean, there's just the the, the punchline for that uh, that for me was when the you know he's trying to explain to them what it's like to to live in a linear lifestyle that we don't understand it, we can't understand you because our life plays out in order, and then when the aliens at the end 
ask, you know, keep taking him back to Wolf and saying, then why do you live here? He has the realization that he doesn't really live in linear time. We just age in linear time. Mm -hmm. You live in the moment you're in in your head. So to me, it was like, what a concept. Yeah. yeah. No, and I was awesome. hoping that's what the series was going to be. It was going to go into these big concepts. And I was sort of, it was sort of a letdown the first season for me because uh, in exploring. Yeah. You know, yeah, you have to really get into the third and fourth season until they start yeah, exploring. Yeah, when they get a ship. Yeah. When they can trek. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us. People are totally going to do uh, this. Thanks like for having me. Yeah. And uh, you can check out Mike at uh, michaeldemerit.com. And uh, he is going to be flying out on Thursday to work on a new AMC pilot that he really can't say much about, um, but uh, should called, be really It's called Low Winter Sun. Low Winter Sun, I can say that. Uh, it's being shot in Detroit. It's set in Detroit. Uh, it's AMC. Same people who brought us Mad Men and Breaking Men and Hell on Wheels. And, uh, they, you know, it's going to be good. Yep. And The uh, Walking Dead, too. We're huge fans of The Walking, Walking Dead. Walking Dead, yeah. Oh, God. Who isn't, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man. It's funny, the person I'm working with on that, because I'm teeing that one, not first AD. The first AD I'm working with, her resume for the last two years is all the shows that I watch. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> so I'm awesome. like, I'm really excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be great. Yeah, no kidding. Man. So, yeah, thanks again. It's been our pleasure to talk to you again. So. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Take care. Yeah, you too. So that was episode 20 of Subspace Communique's Life After Trek. We really hope that you enjoyed this uh, this interview with Michael Demerit. If you'd like to learn more about Michael, you can check him out at michaeldemerit.com. Uh, you can also check out his IMDb page on the Internet Movie Database, obviously, um, where you can learn all the stuff that he's currently working on and all of his past works. Um, we look forward to seeing that pilot from AMC that Michael worked on. I uh, couldn't really tell us a ton about it, obviously, um, but uh, hopefully we'll see that coming up very soon. If you'd like to learn more about our website, Subspace Communique, uh, you can check that out at subspacecommunique.com. We're also on Facebook and, and the Twitters with all the kids, so you can check us out at facebook.com slash subspacecoms and twitter.com slash subspacecoms. And we have a Google Plus page. I still don't know the address for it. <laughs> so check that out. You can uh, do a search on Google Plus for Subspace Communique and probably not get to our site. <laughs> I haven't even tried that. I don't think it works. <laughs> but we'd like to say thanks to uh, all of our listeners out there. I know that we haven't done a show in a while, um, but we have another one lined up this week uh, that we're going to record, and we should be releasing that shortly. And uh, thank you to everyone who left us the amazing reviews on iTunes. We, oh, my gosh. Yeah, totally. We can't say thank you enough for that. And if you like to, re if you would like to review us on iTunes, we would love that as well. So Yeah, we totally wouldn't much. hate it. And we'd like to say hi to our other podcast friends. You can check out Miles and Scott at the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. They do excellent work. Um, they release stuff on a weekly basis so much more than we do. So if, if you want to listen to something while we're not recording stuff, you can check out <laughs> the Sci-Fi Diner podcast.com and Geek Fights too, geekfights.net. Uh, Damon and everyone that's involved with that does such a phenomenal job, and they occasionally ask us to, to join them on their show, even though we ruin it every time we're on it. But they do a fantastic job, and you can check them out at geekfights.net. So that's it for episode 20. Thanks again for listening, and, and we had a blast talking to Michael, and he's such a really nice guy, and, 
And hopefully we'll get to see him again soon before VegasCon because I think that's the next convention he's going to be at that we're going to be at. But um, hopefully we get to spend some more time with him. Um, But until our next episode, everybody out there, live long and prosper. (laughs) 